The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. You're watching Squawk Box. Here are your headlines. Chinese export growth accelerates, topping expectations in September on the back of strong global demand. But imports miss estimates amid fears the domestic economy is slowing. The IMF cuts its global growth outlook for 2021, citing supply chain disruptions and the pandemic as the fund's chief economist says nations must speed up vaccine rollouts. The global community must step up efforts to ensure equitable vaccine access for every country, overcome vaccine hesitancy where there is adequate supply, and secure better economic prospects for all. Apple moves lower after hours on a report it may have to slash iPhone 13 production amid global chip shortages and tightness in supply chains. Meanwhile, though, Louis Vuitton and Christian Dior helped push LVMH sales up 20% in the third quarter. But the French group warns COVID restrictions are hampering growth in Asia. And Russian Energy Week kicks off today. We'll be bringing you a live CNBC panel session with the Russian President Vladimir Putin, as well as the CEOs of BP, Total Energies and ExxonMobil, along with Daimler. You can catch that from 12pm CET. Good morning, everyone. We start the show today talking about the big Chinese trade data that's raised a few questions as exports jumped by more than 28% in the month of September, beating forecasts amid strong global demand. However, import data missed the mark with growth slowing to 17.6%. Let's get out to Sam for more. Sam, during the month, we've been covering huge stories that have stretched from the power outages, uh, the rationing of power to concerns around the property developer Evergrande. How has all of this been uh, flashed up in some of the data or is it still ahead in coming months? Yeah, certainly was a big surprise. Good morning to you, Karen. I think at a headline level, what this tells us is those exports do remain resilient in the face of the pandemic and these other challenges that manufacturers have been facing. We do know that exports have been largely supportive of the economic recovery so far. And what it does show is that demand for goods out of China still remains strong, even as we have seen these other economies reopening around the world. Economists have pointed out that perhaps there was a bit of front loading going on before the big national holiday for Golden Week, which just wrapped up uh, last week. So there may have been a few preemptive measures there ahead of that. But this data certainly does provide some support for this uh, economic slowdown. It does come despite a number of factors. We had, you know, manufacturers in these key industrial hubs really being hit by this power shortage. We know that production at factories that supply to Apple and Tesla were hit, but it also comes as we have seen these supply chain bottlenecks, this global chip crunch and the disruptions caused by COVID and also the strengthening yuan. But uh, exports certainly weren't uh, affected too much by that. It was a little bit of a different story, as you say, though, on the import side of things. In terms of what happened there, though, imports were largely supported uh, by coal imports, which actually hit their highest monthly level all year, up 76% year on year, but also natural gas, the highest since January, which does come as China is scrambling to get coal imports and other energy sources into the country.
country to really keep the lights on and keep people warm uh, this winter. But iron ore imports fell some 2% on these environmentally related steel production controls. We also saw meat imports also down and crude oil imports were also down some 15%. So that's what weighed on that overall headline import number. And that does suggest that there is perhaps some softening demand elsewhere in the domestic economy, particularly as we have seen a slowdown in the property sector amid all this stepped up regulatory scrutiny in the situation with Evergrande. But uh, that all bought the uh, trade surplus to $66.8 billion. That was compared to $46.8 billion, what the market was punching for and widening from $58.3 billion that we saw in August. When it came to the trade surplus with the US, that also widened to $42 billion from $37.7 in August. And of course, that figure is closely watched as China is still lagging behind in its overall purchases under that phase one trade agreement. It has only made around 62% or so of that overall target. And of course, we do know that is partly down to the disruptions caused by the pandemic. We did have China calling for the US to get rid of those tariffs when the two sides uh, spoke uh, over the weekend. But we're still yet to see uh, if those Trump era duties uh, will uh, actually be lifted uh, or not. But certainly in terms of what uh, this data does uh, tell us, the big question now is certainly about the policy response coming from Chinese uh, authorities, because there has been some speculation amid all the other softening data uh, that maybe we may see some further easing by the PBOC to complement its recent dovish tilt with that triple R cut, uh, particularly in the next few months, uh, and particularly as this power crunch is now throwing a spanner in the works for the next quarter to come. Guys, back to you in London. Terrific, Sam. Thank you so much for that. The U.S. House of Representatives has agreed to lift the nation's borrowing limit, pushing out fears of a potential debt default to early December. The House raised the debt ceiling by $480 billion after the Senate passed the measure late last week. And how excited were the markets about that news then, Steve? <laughs> Do you know what? Have I really become that predictable to you after all this time? He just turns... I'll tell you what he just did to me, ladies and gentlemen. While Sam was finishing her report, he just said, I bet you're going to start on jolts, aren't you? I was like, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I, might, I wasn't necessarily. Bet you do, bet you do. So let's talk about jolts. <laughs> so predictable. 20, aren't I? 20 years working together, eh? I know, like an old married couple. So look, here's the thing. I think the jolts were fascinating for all kinds of reasons. But did you see? Did you do your homework? I asked you to this time yesterday. If you haven't handed your homework in, you're in big trouble. Uh, I asked you to look at the jolts, uh, and they are staggering figures. And, and, and I noticed there was a couple of things. One, the, the, the quits is still absolutely stratospheric, going back the, since the series started at the start of this century as well. So people are still quitting in their droves. Now, are they doing it because they feel economically comfortable, because they think the next job is on the horizon, or because they can't get childcare, or because they're worried about COVID? Or all of those four things have been mentioned, by the way. But it was interesting that people were saying, well, actually, the uh, the actual number of vacancies uh, that has uh, job openings has actually come off quite aggressively. And it has come off from the 11.1 million in July down to 10.4. But... Uh, thanks to Carl Weinberg's team over at HFE, I've got the comparisons for you compared with 2018 and 2019, and I think it's very, very telling as well. So the number of job openings, lower than the previous month, but still at 10.4 million, yeah? Compares with the average in 2019 of 7.2 million. The average of 2018 of 7.1 million. So let's just put that in context, in stark context. The fact of the matter is, the US economy 
was firing on all cylinders in 2018 and 2019. Yeah, I think that's fair to agree. We didn't have the kind of stimulus we're getting from central banks in 2018 and 2019. We had higher interest rates. We didn't have quantitative easing. And yet, the number of job openings in the United States are circa 50% higher than they were in those two boom years. I'll say no more. Of course I will. Um, then the fact of the matter is, well, we're also looking at CPI today. We're looking at minutes. We're looking at JP Morgan kicking off the earnings season. It's going to be very exciting. So here we are. This is what the US markets did. Third day in a row down for the major indices. Uh, the Nasdaq was down 0.14. The S&P 500 down 0.24. And the industrial average, the Dow Jones industrial average, down 0.34%. The treasuries, well, the yield on the 10-year has abated somewhat from 161 to 1.5822. A lot of people spending a lot of time talking about yield curve flattening. And of course, if people think harder times around the corner and that we're not going to see uh, a prolonged economic boon and that the, the likes of the IMF are right in, in lowering the temperature in terms of economic growth, then we may well see that flattening continue. Let's have a look at the dollar crosses and where the dollar remains. The dollar actually yesterday uh, continued its moderately strong vein of form up 0.2 of 1% so far in the, well, in the session yesterday. Uh, Euro dollar 115.50 uh, and the dollar yuan trading at 6.4459. Asian markets ex Hong Kong because I understand there is a typhoon. If you are in Hong Kong, my friends, please be careful. Um, we had a little bit of rain in, in Upfield the other week. It was quite terrifying. Um, uh, Nikkei down 0.2 of 1%. The Kospi up 1%. Kospi's having a good session up a percent. That aside, flat to slightly lower down on the Asian indices. Opening calls for the European markets. Uh, There we go. Flat, I would suggest. DAX and MIB, slight weakening. There you go. I did what you told me to do. I did the job. (laughs) I didn't tell you at all. I just knew you were going there. I wasn't necessarily. I had many Uh, avenues I could go. As you know, unlike many reporters and anchors, I don't make this stuff up beforehand. I make it up on the spot. Yes. Yeah, I mean, the great resignation story is fascinating. Isn't it? And I don't know what the cause is. Is it people who've reassessed their life through the pandemic? Or is it problems, uh, as you say, with um, getting childcare? Yes, it is. And do you know why it is, the the, the latter you're talking about? Because the kind of sectors we're talking about where people are quitting in their droves, retail, hospitality... And that goes right back to the other side of the ledger, not the demand problem, but the supply problem. I mean, basically, they're just saying, you're not paying me enough. This is the new world, mate. You know, I don't want your minimum wage. I want a decent wage out of this. I want a career out of this. It's like the HGV drivers in this country who have been treated like absolute rubbish for decades. And the the working practice has been appalling in many cases. Now, actually, people saying, hang on, you are professional and you are very qualified people. Maybe we should pay you a bit more if we want to keep the... And have you seen Felix, though? Yes. Oh, my God, there's another story. We'll talk about that later. Yes. Well, I mean, if you're Larry Fink, it's all about the gig economy. That's to blame. But anyway, we'll talk about that later as well. Uh, Russia is set to kick off its annual energy week where President Putin is due to speak today, presenting his agenda for the country's economy, investment and the energy sector. The event comes amid a growing natural gas crisis in Europe, which has exposed the continent's uh, reliance on imports, particularly from Russia. Mr Putin has offered to stabilise the soaring prices and urged closer cooperation between governments. Uh, But, Dan, it seems to me that President Putin has only offered to help if it's connected with progress on things like sanctions. That's exactly right, Jeff. So let's see if he's going to put those words 
interactions. And if there's anyone among us who knows what it's like to come face to face with the Russian president, Jeff, it is you. So I dare say you're probably having some kind of flashbacks today. Hadley Gamble, our CNBC anchor out here in the Middle East, is preparing to interview the Russian president later today alongside a group of leading energy CEOs as Russian Energy Week kicks off. And this is going to be really important to watch because, of course, Hadley is going to be questioning the president on his commitment to support the European energy markets and help to ease this crisis. So we are going to be making headlines out of this event. Of course, the session comes today as we see European energy prices and European gas prices linger at record levels. Of course, that's been translating into the equity markets and also stoking inflationary fears. It's a narrative that we've been following for the past few weeks now. And there's also a really important geopolitical element to this as well, because we know the Americans are calling on OPEC plus to do more at odds with Biden administration's own green policy. The Europeans are sounding the alarm as well, saying lower than expected supplies from Russia are partly to blame. And remember, Russia is Europe's biggest gas supplier. It contributes more than 40% of the EU's gas imports. So this is really important. And at the same time, Gazprom is the world's top natural gas producer. It accounts for about 12% of global production. Russia is the third largest producer of crude oil after the US and Saudi Arabia as well. Now, at the same time, when you have a look at what's been happening with oil prices throughout the course of the Asian session, it comes at an important time because we have oil still up more than 60% YTD. Right now, we see both Brent and WTI holding above 80 US dollars a barrel. Brent at 83.34, WTI at 80.55. Yes, it has been cooling off over the past two sessions, but we still see momentum in the market. And what we're going to be asking, or what Hadley is going to be asking these major oil CEOs on the panel today is about the outlook here and what's going to happen with regards to the energy transition. We've heard today from the IMF cutting its growth outlook for the United States and other major economies. That's certainly uh, translating into the oil price today, but as I mentioned, still holding above 80 USD. And also the IEA out with its world energy outlook only an hour ago urging governments to do more to reach net zero 2050 targets with COP26 just weeks away. The IEA now saying that the world needs to triple clean energy investment by 2030 to to curb climate change. But of course, how these major oil companies are going to respond to that challenge is going to be important to watch moving forward as we come into that COP26 event as well. So a big day ahead here, guys, as Hadley Gamble sits down with the Russian president, Vladimir Putin. That's terrific. Dan, thank you very much indeed for that. Stay with the channel for more on our coverage, as Dan mentioned, from the Russian Energy Week. Uh, Hadley will be hosting a plenary session later today uh, with the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, as well as the CEOs of BP, Total Energies, uh, ExxonMobil and Daimler. Tune in for that discussion at 12 Central European time. Martin Ratz joins us, uh, Chief Commodities Strategist at Morgan Stanley. Martin, uh, good morning to you. I mean, it's all well and good for the IEA to talk about speeding up the pace of adoption of net zero targets, but that's not going to help us out of this uh, short-term mismatch of uh, supply and demand. Just give us your read on what's happening now with the gas and the oil markets. Have we peaked on prices? Are we seeing conditions ease? Yeah, good morning. Uh, thank you. Um, well, our call is that uh, we haven't peaked on oil prices, but but that we probably have peaked on gas prices. Um, it, it, to, to, an, to a degree, 
Um, uh, it, it, this is somewhat of a mood statement in the sense that gas prices have rallied so much. Um, but uh, from here on, we would be a little cautious. Um, much has been made about the low level of inventory uh, in Europe uh, when it comes to natural gas. These inventories are low, but they look especially low if you include, include the years 2019 and 2020, which had exceptionally high levels of inventory. If you take those years out in a historical context, the inventory situation doesn't look too bad. We are close to the point where we have enough inventories where we can even survive a very cold winter. Inventories are building uh, by now. They can they continue to fill. There's already some demand destruction uh, taking place. Uh, and we would say it's probably likely that, particularly as November starts, some more Russian supplies would be forthcoming. So there are more than enough reasons to, um, to expect that uh, natural gas prices should cool, cool down a little bit. Oil prices, which have rallied, but by no means as much, there is still a great degree of tightness and increasingly also a long-term story to be told. We, um, we've seen a lot of finger pointing at OPEC and I think there was broad uh, disappointment uh, from the consumer level that there wasn't uh, a shift in the agreement to supply more. Um, do you think that that is the right target at this point and do you think that there are any prospects of OPEC actually shifting the current supply agreement next month? Yeah, uh, no, look, I, I would say that that is not the right thing to do. Look, this, uh, what's simply going on is two things. Demand is very strong. Um, the world is coming out of lockdown. All of the mobility indicators are by and large pointing up. Um, driving is up, flying is up, uh, the economy is recovering. And with that, oil demand is coming back. And at the same time, um, the shareholders of publicly listed companies are really encouraging uh, listed oil and gas companies not to invest. And as a result, there is almost no uh, capex response to these very high prices. Um, there is a pipeline of oil projects to be done with break-evens in the $40 range. Oil is 80. These margins are very wide. As far as I can see, there is not a single listed uh, oil company, at least the ones that we cover, um, who are saying, look, we're responding to this uh, with higher capex. So the price signal is somewhat broken. There's an awful lot of tension in this system. OPEC can do a lot, but they can only uh, do so much. I would say the tension in the system largely has to be resolved by price and getting up to a level where there's a degree of demand erosion. Uh, OPEC can cool down the market a bit, perhaps, over uh, the, the, the next coming months. But I think what's also in the back of OPEC's mind is, well, look, we can add some more barrels, but what, if, what would happen if that didn't cool down the oil market? Where would we be then? And so perhaps with that question in mind, they're playing it rather cautiously. Martin, good morning to you. It's Karen jumping in. I want to ask you about the impact for the airline industry because we know the sector has been struggling to get back on its feet. It's uh, battling the wage shortages and rising costs, not to mention very choppy demand still around COVID restrictions. What's the pressure coming through from jet fuel? Because I noticed a couple of weeks back you were looking at the jet fuel crack spreads improving. What's the impact then for the airline sector in terms of pressure from those high fuel costs? Yeah, uh, no, th this, is a, the, this is a real quandary for the airline industry in the sense that, um, look, normally airlines hedge. Um, but uh, what we've now seen is that when there is an announcement, say from the United States a couple of weeks ago about, you know, opening flights from the UK into Europe, which start from sometime in November, is that financial investors immediately translate that into expectations for higher jet fuel demand. And rightly so, that is what it means. Um, then immediately... Uh, jet fuel prices start to rally. Uh, what airlines need to do in practice, they need to figure out, okay, how many flights are we going to reactivate from Europe to the US? 
in this example, how much jet fuel, therefore, do we need? How much do we ha hedge? That takes a couple of days at a minimum to sort of do some of these numbers. So, so the financial community effectively front runs that and immediately reprices jet fuel, whilst the airlines struggle to put their hedges in place quick enough. And, and simply the practicalities of all of this makes it difficult for airlines to hedge. Uh, and therefore, yeah, rising, hedge, uh, rising jet fuel prices at the moment, um, which they clearly are because we have rising crude prices. And on top of that, a rising uh, a jet fuel crack is a headwind for uh, airline profitability. Martin, um, so many important questions, but you've already kind of alluded to one about the pressure on oil and gas companies to not reinvest in big upstream projects. But my question is related, but not exactly that point. What's happened to shale? And that's what OPEC will be looking at now, because that's the, the X factor they've been terrified about and have mistimed and got it very badly wrong many times over the last 10 to 15 years. They must be thinking, is there a, a shale revival coming up the rails that's going to scupper us and scupper the price? Because they'll be yeah. waiting for it, but it doesn't seem to be happening. No, um, the, the debate around shale over the last sort of nine to 12 months has been fascinating. Look, from OPEC's perspective, um, the, 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 the sort of the response of shale and how OPEC responds to that, it almost sort of works in the same direction. As in, if shale grows a little bit, but it's not threatening to OPEC market share, right? It doesn't run ahead. Then actually OPEC can actually keep the market tight. So in, the se in that sense, you then don't have too much shale uh, production, which allows OPEC to also hold back uh, supply because it doesn't need to worry about market share. If shale were to ramp up, uh, strongly, like in 16, 17, 18, then OPEC would be forced in a position where they need to start defending their market share and they need to ramp up too. So it's not that these two things offset each other. They, they, Shale and OPEC will probably work in the same direction. Look, the, the practical reality is, uh, and I think this, is debate, this debate is almost done by now, which is all to say, but we've seen tremendous capital discipline from US Shale, particularly from publicly listed oil companies, which are sort of two thirds of US Shale. Um, publicly listed companies have hardly added any rigs for seven months now. And that's the pressure from investors working. You can still see the economic signal at work in private companies, which are adding rigs. But private companies are only a subset of total US shale, it's a, the remaining third roughly. And also what's not to be forgotten is that private companies on the whole drill less productive wells. So I think OPEC is looking at this and say, well, yeah, sure, there is a subset of shale operators who are adding wells. They're not that productive. We, get, we will get some shale growth, but it's not threatening to our market share. And therefore, we can also you know, play it rather tight, so to say. Martin, I've said it before and I'll say it again. You're one of the people I always learn something from when I hear you speak on CNBC. So thank you very much indeed for that. Martin Ratz, who is the Chief of Commodity Strategist at Morgan Stanley. Thank you, sir. Coming up on the show, the IMF updates its outlook on global growth and financial risk. We'll bring you more from our first on interview with the IMF financial counselor, Tobias Adrienne. Uh, that's coming up next. And to stay up to date with all of the disruptions and transformations in the global energy market, of course, you can listen to Hadley's plenary session along with uh, the Russian President Vladimir Putin. Subscribe to the Squawk Box podcast available where you get your podcasts from.
Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. Fed officials say the central bank is on track to reduce its bond buying program next month with Fed Vice Chair Richard Clarida citing robust economic growth and stronger than anticipated inflation. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics will publish its latest CPI reading for September today. Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostic said policymakers will need to watch closely for any signs of pandemic-related pressures weighing on long-term inflation expectations. The St. Louis uh, Fed President uh, James Bullard said he was in favour of the central bank tapering its asset buying, um, warning that inflation may spike again next year. I'd support starting the taper in November. Uh, As you know, I've been advocating trying to get finished with the taper process uh, even by the end of the first quarter next year because I want to be in position to react to possible uh, upside risk to inflation uh, next year as we try to uh, move out of this pandemic. Uh, The IMF has marginally downgraded its outlook for global growth this year, forecasting world GDP will rise by 5.9% from 6% in its July report. The fund cut its US growth forecast by a full percentage point from its July projections, whilst increasing its view of the euro area. The group warned of high uncertainty around inflation. Thanks for that. Uh, But said it largely believes that price pressures will gradually ease. Now, the IMF chief economist is Gita Gopinath, and she called for global solidarity as the pandemic uncertainty continues. Recent developments have made it abundantly clear that we are all in this together and the pandemic is not over anywhere until it's over everywhere. If COVID-19 were to have a prolonged impact into the medium term, it could reduce global GDP by cumulative $5.3 trillion over the next five years relative to our current projection. It does not have to be this way. The global community must step up efforts to ensure equitable vaccine access for every country, overcome vaccine hesitancy where there is adequate supply, and secure better economic prospects for all. Global financial vulnerabilities are intensifying as economic optimism fades, according to the IMF's Global Financial Stability Report. The fund said massive global stimulus masks risks in several key sectors, including transportation and services, as jitters over indebted Chinese property giant Evergrande continue to ripple through markets. The group said it believes Beijing has the ability to address the situation. While speaking to CNBC, the IMF Financial Counselor and Director of the Monetary and Capital Markets Department, Tobias Adrian, addressed the outlook for monetary policy. At the moment, all eyes are on the central banks of the world. Um, as I, as I uh, explained, the easing of monetary policy was a key contributor to address the, the pandemic. Uh, but uh, there's this question of whether monetary policy is going to normalize or even tighten in some countries. 
In fact, when we look at emerging markets, many emerging markets have already tightened monetary policy. That's particularly so in Latin America and uh, in some Eastern European countries. Um, concerning uh, the major central banks, the Federal Reserve, the ECB, the Bank of Japan, and the Bank of England, um, there is a, a lot of debate about what the monetary policy is going to be uh, going forward. Um, so in the case of the Federal Reserve, of course, inflation is temporarily above target. It's expected to come down to target, but there's a question of how monetary policy is going to evolve in coming months. Is there going to be tapering? Is the path of policy going to shift forward? Um, in the ECB, uh, there's a similar debate about tapering. Uh, at the U in the UK, there's a debate about inflation. And it's really only in Japan that there's no worry about inflation. Inflation remains uh, very low and, and, and uh, well below target. I would like to quote you on this theme because um, in the in the report and in the blog post you've wrote, you've written that uh, essentially if inflation is here for longer than what central banks expect, then uh, central bankers should act decisively. So is that a message to the Fed and to the ECB and perhaps also to the Bank of England to reduce stimulus at a faster pace? For the moment. While it is true that inflation has been higher and more persistent than we had expected, we still uh, feel that the uh, stance of monetary policy is appropriate. But all of this is state dependent, so it depends on how inflation is going to evolve. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.